In the 1950s, spy agencies like the CIA paid artists, writers, and intellectuals to fight the cultural Cold War. Not All Propaganda is Art is a new miniseries from me, Benjamin Walker, host of the Theory of Everything podcast. It's a story about three writers who got caught up in the cultural Cold War, both as collaborators and as targets. It's also a story about the propaganda that made the world we live in today. Find Not All Propaganda is Art on the Theory of Everything feed wherever you get your podcasts. B C E N. Hello and welcome to the Whale Hunting Podcast, where we shine a light onto hidden worlds of money and power. I'm Tom Wright, and this week I'm joined by Yaroslav Trofimov, Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent at the Wall Street Journal and author of a new book about the Russian invasion of Ukraine called Our Enemies Will Vanish. So Yaroslav, welcome to Whale Hunting. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Well, congratulations on a fantastic book. You know, the reviews are saying this is one of the best, if not the best, book to come out of the Ukraine war so far. And it's a really detailed uh, reporting on especially the first year of the war, but but the war until now. You're, of course, one of the world's most accomplished foreign correspondents. You spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, a lot of time in, in Iraq and other places. And for this war, you went home because you grew up in Ukraine. For Our Enemies Will Vanish, you are reporting on your home turf. So tell me a little bit about what it was like you know, what are the differences reporting somewhere you know intimately as a child and, and having grown up there versus doing it in places where you've spent a lot of time, like Afghanistan and Iraq, but you're not from there? How, how was that different and how did that affect the, the reportage? Yeah, I, I, obviously, it's emotionally, it's much harder to report on a war in your own country where missiles are falling on the town, you know, where you grew up. On a practical level, it's easier because you just understand things at a sort of intuitive visceral level that you don't when you have you sort of have to filter things through difference of language and culture when you have to sometimes work with interpreters but uh, having spent much of my career most of my career this century covering wars and mayhem i had several occasions when i came back to ukraine and the first time i came back to ukraine professionally was in 2004 after having spent a terrible year in Iraq. Uh, you know, I drove into Baghdad through the desert and then terrible bombings and kidnappings began pretty quickly. So friends were killed or kidnapped. You know, the Red Cross, the UN were blown up. And I remember coming to Ukraine in 2004 to cover what was called the Orange Revolution. It was an uprising against uh, an unfair election and being immensely proud of how much the Ukrainians achieved without violence. Not a single window storefront was broken, nobody was hurt, and yet these very peaceful demonstrations succeeded in reversing an election and a new and fresh round of voting. And then fast forward to 2014. So back then, 2004, was a conflict between Ukrainians, and they found a peaceful way of resolving it. But then 2014, it was a conflict with Russia, and then things became much bloodier. It was first uh, the war in Donbass, a conflict that the world didn't really pay attention to. Ukraine received no help from the West. But it was still a very bloody affair. 14,000 people died there in, in just a few months. And then uh, in 2021, I was in 
Kabul, having spent five years there, I was there to uh, cover the fall of Kabul, but also to help the evacuation of our current and former staff and the family members. And I watched President Ashraf Ghani in Kabul on the outskirts of the city, telling troops that we will fight to the end, the Taliban will never enter. And then the next morning, by noon, he had taken a helicopter to Abu Dhabi, escaping the country, and the Taliban were in my hotel by lunchtime. And just a few months later, after that, I was in Kiev. And as the war began, as the Russia invaded, obviously in the back of my head I had a very similar fear. What if President Zelensky would do a Ghani? What if President Zelensky would listen to the advice he was being given by Boris Johnson and other foreign leaders who were telling him, come to London, set up a government in exile, you know, your safety is paramount, and, but he refused to budge. And with him, the entire country refused to yield to the Russians and uh, mounted a resistance that surprised everyone, I think. Not just the Russians, but also the West, because Ukraine was giving up for dead. You know, the American embassy was shut down, and nobody really was giving it many chances to last more than a week. In your book, you say that you were surprised, as was almost everyone who was observing Ukraine with, with Putin's war aims. You know, most people thought there was going to be a limited war, more like 2014, as you mentioned, when he went into the east, to the Donbass region, into the Crimea, and, and to just to keep the certain portions, which are portions of Ukraine where people speak Russian and they're more likely to be pro-Russian and they had been pro-Russian in some of those areas. But instead, he launched a full-out war on the, on the whole country. And you write in the book about how that shocked you and, and many other people who knew in Ukraine intimately. Yeah, obviously, the entire gambit only made sense if you believed what Putin was saying in his famous letter on the historical unity of Ukrainians and Russians. He wrote this letter in the summer of 2021, you know, more than half a year before the war, and he said that Russians and Ukrainians are one people, and only a small Western post clique in Kiev is prying us apart. And uh, neither he nor the Russian army really expected serious resistance. You know, Russian troops had parade uniforms in their vehicles as they were coming towards Kiev. And uh, this belief that the Russian speakers in Ukraine and, you know, maybe half the population of Ukraine prefers to speak Russian at home, or at least preferred before the war, are somehow loyal to Russia because of that was a fundamental mistake. You know, yes, in 2013 and before, there was this divide in Ukraine, uh, and the sort of the pro-Western candidates would usually get the votes in Kiev and West, and the so-called pro-Russian ones would usually get votes east and south of Kiev, where most people speak Russian. But then, at the time, what was Russia? Russia was seen by many Ukrainians as a more prosperous country, possibly a better-run country, a country with higher wages, a country of opportunities. Zelensky himself at the time was an actor who was living in Moscow and who was working for Russian state television. He hosted the Russian television's New Year's Day show in 2014, so as the Maidan revolution was very much underway in Kiev. But then Russia invaded. Russia invaded in 2014, uh, took over parts of Donbass, and everyone saw for the following eight years what it means to live under Russian rule. The economy collapsed, basically gangsters took over the cities, and anybody who could escape, escaped. More than half the population fled to Ukraine, to the West, to Russia itself. Mostly the elderly and those too sick or too poor to move just stayed behind. And so uh, by 2022, people in Kharkiv, people in Odessa, people in all the other Russian-speaking cities of Ukraine, had this visible example of what it means to be under Russian rule. 
that hundreds of thousands of refugees from Russia rule living in their midst, and nobody wanted that kind of life. And I think that's why uh, when the Russians invaded, the resistance was so fierce everywhere in these so-called Russian-speaking areas. One thing you show so well in the book is that resistance. Now, you go in there with Steve-O, who's the Wall Street Journal's head of security, who's with you, and, and another photographer, and you're basically traveling around a country where it's really not clear exactly where the front line is, especially in those early days of February 2022. And I think people are going to find that fascinating in the book because how do you decide where to go and where it's going to be safe? At one point, you're shuttling between Kiev and a fishing lodge because the fishing lodge outside might be safer and then you think it's not safer, you go back and this happens over and again. And you're meeting people who are showing great courage, people who won't leave Often you just can't believe it when you're reading about this, that they won't leave their houses. And, and then civilians who are fighting, as you say, because they've really, over the years, come to distrust Russia since 2014. So tell us a bit about the processes of being a foreign correspondent in a war zone and, and deciding where to go and what to do. Well, there was really great chaos in the beginning. Nobody knew where the front lines are. You know, the Russians had this rapid thrust. They advanced hundreds of miles in a couple of days. And the Ukrainian army very wisely chose to play for time, and instead of fighting for every inch of land, they retreated to preserve the forces, and then started striking Russian supply routes and striking the Russian forces in the rear. But what it meant practically for someone like me, as I was traveling with Stevo and uh, with Manu Bravo, the excellent Pulitzer Prize winning Spanish photographer, whose photos are in the book and who was reporting with me throughout, uh, you know, it was dangerous. You know, we were mistaken for Russian spies ourselves. I was doing a live TV shot with my phone at the gas station, and when we stopped at the next gas station, suddenly police arrived. You know, the, the Kalashnikovs and the ready stuck their barrels into our backs, and they were very happy uh, because they decided that they caught Russian spies. Is this a story in the book where they ask you to pronounce bread? No, that's another one. <laughs> to tell that story, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, so the, I mean, there was this idea early in the war that the Russians are unable to pronounce the word palenitsa, which is a kind of Ukrainian bread. So this became an improvised password at the checkpoint. But uh, I think in that case, it was well beyond palenitsa. And so uh, they were quite rough with us. And then uh, luckily there was signal, so I could FaceTime with a senior official in the Ukrainian interior ministry who vouched for us. And they sort of they saw him on the, on the phone and, and said, you know who I am? And I said, yes, we do. All right, well, let them go. They're not spies. But yeah, there was this uh, fear of spies everywhere. And because you didn't know where to go and how to travel, because you didn't know where the Russians would be, there were also accidents. There were some other journalists that drove into Russian fire. But also it meant surprises because I was looking at the map and I was trying to travel from Zaporizhia in the east to Mykolaiv in the south. And because of the Russian thrust, it was a really long roundabout journey around the town called Voznesensk, which was a, a strategic town on the pathway to one of Ukraine's three main nuclear power stations. And the town had been marked as under Russian control. But then I looked at the Telegram channel on social media of the local newspaper. It turned out that the Russians were no longer there. And so we decided to go and check it out. And in fact, it was stumbled by pure accident into the site of Russia's first real defeat in the battlefield, because Voznesiansk was where the Russians came in, and the local citizens, the local mayor, prepared for the defense. They used the bulldozers and dump trucks to channel the Russians into certain pathways, they blew up a bridge, 
And then local civilians using social media or just uh, messenger apps on the phone were guiding artillery fire uh, onto the just established Russian base. So the Russians left that in one night in Voznesensk, and when they retreated, they left behind dozens of casualties, you know, tanks and, and other equipment. And again, we only found out about this because we were trying to find a way to get to Mykolaiv safely on the road. Right, and, and you make you make the wrong turn and you end up in, with Russians, right, or getting hit in fire. I mean, you write in the book about how you were an earpin. I think people might remember that very famous photograph of what was believed to be a family with some suitcases and they were killed. It turned out not to be a family, but there were some kids and people were quite emotional about that. It was one of the photos that I think did lead to, along with the Butcher massacre, to the US opening up aid to Ukraine. And you were there just moments before that, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically what happened is that Manu, the photographer, and Stevo had gone ahead towards the bridge in Irpin, and I was talking to some Ukrainian officials, and then I sort of ran to catch up with them. So they had already turned the corner, and then I walked past this monument to Soviet soldiers, and as we turned the corner and walked behind, the shelling started. And having Stevo around meant that we knew what to do, because even though I've spent my life covering wars, it was rarely on the wrong end of artillery. We should say Steve-O works for the Wall Street Journal and he's a former British military officer. Exactly, yeah. Steve-O is our head of risk. He spent his life uh, in the various war zones and he's a, a veteran of the British military. But again, though uh, I have spent much of my life covering wars, it was rarely on the wrong end of an army that has a powerful artillery. You know, the Taliban or the Iraqi insurgents pose different sorts of risks. But Steve-O knew what to do. And so you count from the outgoing boom, do the whistle of the shell to the uh, moment of explosion uh, when it lands. So it was seven seconds at the time. And so what you had to do is, once you hear the outgoing, you have seven seconds to run, then you duck, because if you're lying on the ground, you're less likely to be hit by shrapnel, because shrapnel sprays up in the vertical cone. So we kind of double back to where we came from. And in those very minutes, this uh, woman and her children and, uh, and a Ukrainian man who was helping them were killed in a place by that monument to Soviet soldiers that I had just passed. And uh, this was the first time that we saw, that Western journalists saw, just columns of civilians trying to flee being shelled by the Russians. So, so the first deliberate murder of Ukrainian civilians that we captured was we didn't know that in Bucha, just up the road, hundreds and hundreds more were being killed in those days. There's a great bit in the book where you very self-awaredly say, war correspondents are a little bit delusional. You're, you're, you're actually, in the, I think, in that moment in the book, thinking about how why, why do Ukrainians demand to stay in their homes when they're almost certainly going to die if they do so or get shelled? And it makes you a little bit upset, right? Why do these old ladies and, and these families not retreat west away from the Russian shelling? And you can't quite understand it. Maybe it's some sort of defiance. But, but people are hardwired to think it won't happen to them. And then you say, well, that's also true of war correspondence, right? We keep going into these dangerous situations. We think it's not going to happen to us. Is that, is that, is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, yeah, obviously, you know, that's, that's the one way you can keep operating, you know, because if you start thinking about all the bad things uh, that can happen to you in many various ways, that just makes it harder to focus, let's put it this way. It was an interesting phenomenon because you would go into these cities that are basically destroyed, and, you know, this is not Syria. Like, the people of Ukraine have a choice. You know, anybody in Bakhmut would just get on the bus and be taken all the way to Berlin or Amsterdam 
and live in safety. You know, Ukrainians are free to come to the European Union. They don't need a visa. Unlike the Syrians, they didn't have to brave the seas and, you know, risk drowning. And yet people still stayed in these homes. And for some it was stubbornness. For some it was because they were taking care of neighbors or elderly relatives who couldn't move. But for many others, it was also this refusal to believe that the unthinkable could happen, even though it was happening all around them. So you would talk to this woman, she was saying, but it's okay, like the apartment on my left, you know, doesn't have a wall anymore. The apartment on my right either, but I still have my wall and like only one window was broken. I patched it up with some plastic. So why should I move? So tell me how you got into being a war correspondent in the first place. You, you know, we worked together at the Wall Street Journal and, you know, you were famous for having had one of the, what was considered one of the best jobs. You were a, the sort of the Islamic world correspondent after September the 11th, weren't you? And, that, and that's, I think that's how you got into to doing this. Well, you know, I joined the journal in 1999 and I had a very cushy job. I was a Rome correspondent and I was writing about all the beautiful things that Italy has to offer. And then 9-11 happened. And it so happened that... I spoke Arabic and Hebrew, having uh, worked in the Middle East before. And we didn't have very many people with that experience at the time in the journal. We didn't have a Middle East Bureau. And so uh, the evening of September 11th, 2001, I got on a plane and went first to Egypt, and then to the Gulf, and then it went on from there. Did the whole war in Iraq, driving up from Kuwait in a rented Hertz SUV that I solemnly promised to Hertz we'll never cross the border. Uh, not that there was anybody left at Hertz. By the time the war began, they all they closed the shop and, and, and left the country. And uh, after that, I was in Kabul uh, for five years, running our Afghanistan and Pakistan coverage. And really, I was kind of done with the wars. But then first, the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. And as someone who had been there for so long, and also as someone who felt responsibility because I had hired so many of the people that were now facing mortal danger should the Taliban take over. I came back there and spent much of 2021 both covering the collapse of Afghanistan and getting all our people out. And we did get all of them out. And then happened the war in Ukraine. And again, it's it's the one war that I definitely cannot sit out because A, I am from Ukraine. And I think I had the duty to tell the story in part because knowing the country, knowing the language, but also so being an insider, I was also an outsider in the sense that I could tell the story in a way that is accessible to people in the West, uh, to people in America. And the sort of the mix of inside and outside perspectives, I think, makes makes it unique. So your, your desire to retire from war correspondence doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon, right? I mean, although this resistance was very powerful and stopped Russia in its tracks, there's been some setbacks for Ukraine in the last year. I mean, it's it's amazing how quickly this has fallen out of the main headlines on, say, cable news and, and other things and been taken over by other news. But the war's still raging on. And the counteroffensive last year wasn't that successful. They lost Bakhmut recently. So what's your prognosis for what's going to happen in Ukraine in 2024? The, the book covers mostly the first year of the war, which is really where all the action was. In the past year, not much has changed as far as the front lines are concerned. The Russians took Bakhmut, which is a small town, but overall, less than a percentage point of Ukrainian territory has changed hands. That doesn't mean nothing is happening. The Russians tried to advance and they failed. The Ukrainians had a counteroffensive, also failed. And now the Russians again are trying to advance. So lots of people are dying every day for no or little material change in the front lines. Ukraine now is in a difficult position because of the shortage of ammunition that is a direct result of 
American aid drying up and Europeans not being able to keep up with Ukraine's needs. This is a dynamic, unfortunately, that will persist through the year. Ukraine is now on the defensive, and Russia is counting on a Trump victory in the U.S. Russia is counting on exhaustion in the West. And it, so far, it looks like that Putin's bet that the West will tire of supporting Ukraine and lose patience could actually pay off. We should say that the U.S. has given $75 billion to Ukraine so far, civilian, military, and humanitarian aid. And another $50 billion is held up in debates in Congress over a new national security bill, right? And totally spuriously linked to immigration laws that the Republicans want changed. And that's that's the real problem that you're referring to there for Zelensky and for Ukraine, right? Because they don't get that aid. They're running out of ammunition. They're running out of javelin, anti-tank uh, missiles, those kind of things, right? But the thing is that aid has already run out. So uh, we are already seeing the effect of the lack of funding. Funding basically ran out at the end of last year. And yes, there is this linkage to uh, the border security. Somehow it became linked. And the Ukraine's strategy is that its fight for survival became hostage to the domestic debate in the US about one of the most untractable domestic political issues. So we'll be left with what you say are these kind of front lines that haven't moved too much in the last in the last 18 months. And I guess another problem for Ukraine is that they've lost 70,000 people uh, military officers and soldiers, and Russia's lost 120,000, because of US data. But of course, Russia's a much larger country. So on a per capita basis, it's harder for Ukraine to keep that up as well, right? Yeah, well, there's several points here. I, I, think, I think the fact that the front lines haven't moved until now doesn't mean they will not in the future. And yes, Russia has three and a half times the population of Ukraine. It has an industrial base to make its own weapons, and Ukraine doesn't have much, and also whatever military industries it does have are targeted by Russian missile strikes. Ukraine does have a manpower shortage, and it definitely has a shortage of weapons and ammunition. That's why Western support remains critical. Well, Yarrow, congratulations again. Our Enemies Will Vanish um, is in all bookstores. It's it's a fantastic uh, bit of war reportage, and it's laced with context and history. If you read this, you really feel like you're, you're getting a primer on the region from a real expert. You can go read uh, Yarrow's other books, The Siege of Mecca and Faith at War, which is we discussed earlier, which is about his re- reportage after September the 11th. Uh, thanks very much for coming on, Yarrow. Thank you. Great to be on the show. That's it for this week. And thanks to Yaroslav for joining us. You can find his book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, online and in all good bookshops. And you can follow Yaroslav's reporting in the journal or on his Twitter feed at Yarotrof. That's Y-A-R-O-T-R-O-F. The best way to stay up to date with whale hunting is to hit follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also subscribe to the Whale Hunting Newsletter for updates on the shadowy lives of the powerful and ultra-wealthy at whalehunting.projectbrazen.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for more. Whale Hunting is a production of Project Brazen. It's hosted by me, Tom Wright, and Bradley Hope. It's produced by Megan Dean and Claire Urban. At Project Brazen, Mariangel Gonzalez is our project manager. Ryan Ho is the creative director, with additional design from Andrea Claridge. In the 1950s, spy agencies like the CIA paid artists, writers, and intellectuals to fight the cultural Cold War. 
Not All Propaganda is Art is a new miniseries from me, Benjamin Walker, host of the Theory of Everything podcast. It's a story about three writers who got caught up in the cultural Cold War, both as collaborators and as targets. It's also a story about the propaganda that made the world we live in today. Find Not All Propaganda is Art on the Theory of Everything feed wherever you get your podcasts.